Hi, you've called the Mojo Radio Show. We can't come to the phone right now because we're about to start the show. But please, wait for the tone and the boys will be with you shortly. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Hey everybody and welcome to the mega season finale on the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you for joining us. If you have been on this ride for the whole of season five, our sincere thanks. It's been, uh, I know it's been hard for you to hang in there, but you've done it. Uh, We appreciate it. If you're new to the show, what are we all about? Well, this little program just finds interesting people from all walks of life, any topic from anyone who we think has their mojo working. We talk to them, we extract their tips, their tools, their opinions, their thoughts on what we can do to get our mojo working in and out of work. It's been a really great year. Season five, this is the end of season five. We are preparing for season six and judging by those people who have agreed to be a guest, it will be another cracker. In fact, Robert, I would go so far as to say the show just keeps getting better. It's the show that just keeps giving, isn't it? Just keeps Mm. on giving. <laughs> it's like your Tim Tam fridge. It just, it's just, it's the packet of Tim Tams that yeah. never gives out. It yeah. just keeps, keeps yeah. refilling. Just getting better and better. Five seasons in, is it too late to disclose that I actually don't have a beer freezer in the studio? I have a Tim Tam fridge. <laughs> <laughs> Full transparency. <laughs> mm. Tim Tams. <laughs> so, and, and they're cold. Um, the. <laughs> Body's a temple. Actually, yours is more like an amusement park. Anyway, um, I digress. <laughs> so why is this a mega finale and end of season parté, which is the French for party? Well, it's because we just figure we should stop down for a bit. We are going to do some work here, as you can hear in the background. We'll get to that later. Uh, but we just thought we'd celebrate... We had a couple of unexpected phone calls, which we thought we'd throw into the show anyway. Got some bits, some lessons of rock and some stuff to throw in. And we thought we'd have a bit of a party and finish up the year, mate, didn't we? Yeah, anything but dark. The Mojo Radio Show. Simmer down, you noisy, screaming thing. So I'm going to take you back. As John Stevens from Noiseworks once said, yes, take me back. (laughs) Jeez, that was an enthusiastic... Yeah, I've got no idea where you're going, but anyway. uh, I'm going back maybe... 20 years ago, mm-hmm. I was at an Anthony Robbins, or Tony, as you'll hear him mentioned mm. in this show, uh, a Tony Robbins gig in Hawaii, and I met a guy called Kurik Ashley. And it was one of those times where you meet somebody and they just have an impact and they resonate in your memory. Of all the people you meet, there's, there's certain people who just resonate in your memory. And we did a workout together on a, a big grassed area, a grassy knoll uh, on this island of Hawaii together. It was Tony Robbins' gig. And I've got to say, from that time on, I've kind of followed from a distance what Kurik Ashley has been doing. At that time, I think it's fair to say he was a, a high-performance coach, but he really has gone on to work with some pretty impressive people. But as a, a high-performance coach, and well, let's call it a success coach worldwide, He's now working not only with professional people but also organisations. So he's worked with uh, Apple, uh, Schwarzkopf, Western Hotels, our Australian Royal Air Force, CUB, our brewery here down under. And he goes into what's good about Keurig is it's not just the stuff to do but it's the mindset you require and the changes you need to make in your mindset to be at your best. And then... He's also got a private list, and when you, he'll talk about some of them sh- during the show, I'm sure, but he's working with some of the A-graders in 
Hollywood in film and TV. He works with directors, producers, because that's where he came from, um, as well as a few rock stars. So this guy really is at the top of his game. And then he's also, as you'll hear, work with some Olympic medalists. And there's some great stories about how he's taken Olympic medalists to get them to the top step of the podium. So I wrote to Kurik. He remembered that, not me, but he remembered our time. <laughs> oh, Gary, hi. He remembered that event in Hawaii uh, and as a best-selling author internationally of a book called How Would Love Respond? I just thought the whole package was great and I said to him, look, we met many years ago. Would you come on our little program and have a chat? And he said, yes, uh, we've got him on the line. So, Kurik Ashley, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. I'm honoured. Thanks for having me. Now, when, when people ask you what you do... How do you like to reply, Kieran? Well, I, you know, I, I, I'm honored that, uh, you know, I've been given a nickname and it's called the Transformer. And, and you know, transformation, it, it, part of the word A-T-I-O-N means the experience of and trans means to go beyond and the part of the word form means, well, what you have now. So means the experience to go beyond what you have right now. And that's what I help people do. So I work with them in business, relationships, health and fitness, achieving Goals that are so crazy that pe- most people tell you you can't do that, but I've seen it happen time and time again. So I'm, I'm very honored that people call me the transformer. I guess that's the easiest, shortest answer. And people come to you looking for success because you have you have this reputation of helping people to find success. In your own mind, how do you define success? Well, that's a that's a great question because I think most people haven't really even. Um, thought about what is success, you know? And for me, it's, you know, I have, uh, my wife and I, we have three young kids. Um, I have a really hot, stunning, beautiful wife. I'm sure she's going to be hot and stunning <laughs> when she's 80, but when she's 80, I'll be like 207. So I want to enjoy her and our relationship right now. We, we live on a beautiful farm, you know? So success to me is um, enjoying what you value most in life right now and making more money and expanding your business and being healthy and fit um, and having fun and all the rest of this. It's, it's, it's a holistic answer. You know, like, what's the point of being rich if you're sick or being wealthy if you're lonely? It's really about having everything you want, but enjoying it right now. And But if we don't enjoy it right now, then you won't ever get it later because whatever you plant is what you're going to grow. So I teach people to start building and designing that life now because then the brain will want to expand on it. You know, it's interesting, Kurik, and I hadn't planned to go here, but now that you've taken me on this off-ramp, I'm just going to park here for a second. If I asked Erin, your wife, Mm -hmm. Erin's definition of success, how far from it would be, how far would that answer be from your answer? And the reason I ask that is... An observation that you see often you hear about is the husband or wife who's in business measure their success around a certain way with little or no regard for how their partner actually sees success. And then down the track where the partner who's working has got all the success, they go to the partner and suddenly they're gone because they've never really sat down and said, how aligned are we? How aligned are you with Erin? Oh, I would say 100%. Um, you know, just, just to kind of, since we're parked here for a moment, you know, uh, about nine years ago, Erin's husband, 
you know, died at 35 years old while walking through the mall with her with a three and a half month old strapped to his chest and literally dropped dead at for no heart attack, no stroke, nothing. You know, uh, 30 years ago, I was in a helicopter crash at the Chuck Norris film where five of my friends got died um, when I was doing Delta Force 2 at Chuck Norris. Um, you know, we we want to live right now and we want to be harmonized now. And yes, we want to be financially successful and because we have a business and all that stuff. Yeah, that's, but that's all of it. And so we're very harmonized on that. And we want to enjoy our life now because both of us really have a knowing that in any moment, you know, on a beautiful sunny day, your legs can get kicked out of you by life. And it's not fair, but life never has been fair. It never will be fair. Um, so it doesn't turn out the way that it should. It turns out the way that it does. So now it's going to come down to what do you do with it that creates the life that you get. So we, we're very harmonized. We want to enjoy each other. We want to, you know, we don't know if this is our last day together. So we're enjoying it. And our kids, they're young now. So we want to enjoy them right now. And so we spend a lot of quality time with all of them. And, you know, uh, and, you know, Aaron does her, her yoga and her mindfulness. And I do Aikido four times a week. And, you know, we, we live our life right now. And, and yes, we want to be successful financially. Do you guys set down specific time to sit and get alignment, Kirik? Like, is it something that happens? Do, do, you, do you have certain appointments where you just check in? Every morning. Um, well, the, you know, I, I, it's kind of a, you know, a personal issue, but might as well. The, when we first wake up, the first thing we do before uh, we start the day is we actually just kind of cuddle, you know, and, and appreciate each other. Um, you know, and it just, it doesn't have to be for hours or whatever, but, you know, we just kind of get together and cuddle and do that. And then we get up in the morning cause we're up before the kids. Um, we have a amazing views from our deck on the farm is we make a really five-star cup of coffee and we sit there and we just kind of appreciate because if you're going to have coffee, have a good cup. Right. Um, and so we appreciate where we are and we get centered and we have gratitude for where we are and what we get to do. And we have appreciation for each other. And then our kids get up and um, we make them breakfast and they're all dressed for school. And then Aaron and I kind of wrestle who gets to drive them to school, who gets to take them, you know, pick them up because we both love doing it. So I get to drive them to school and she gets to pick them up. Um, and it's, you know, we're that way. And then we have a, a plan, but um, we do everything very peacefully. We don't do anything stressfully. We're not, you know, we're not in a hectic way. And that's why we produce so much because your brain links up, wow, I love this life. And then it figures out how to keep it and expand on it. So it's, it's, it's part of the success strategy, actually. It's part of the, the formula. It's not my formula. It's the formula. It's the way the, the science of the brain works. What's interesting, Keurig, is that people hear this show, they'll go online and see your stuff, they would have seen you last week in New Zealand and you are a fit, powerful, successful guy, changing lives. And they'd say, you know what, this guy's just got it, got it going on. However, if I take you back only a number of years ago or a few years ago, you were homeless and you've been homeless a number of times. When you look back, what was your identity then versus your identity today? Well, it, it, it's funny that you asked that, is that... Um you know, there was different parts of my life that I actually had quite handled. Obviously, the financial part, I didn't, um, which was just another piece of the puzzle I was looking for. But, you know, back in when I lived in L.A., um, you know, early on, when I first moved to L.A. from Chicago, 
I uh, got to be close friends. He became my my Mr. Miyagi, my mentor. His name's John Herzfeld. He's a, a movie director, an Emmy-winning uh, movie director. And his best friend, because they were roommates in college together, is Sylvester Stallone. And so through him, I got to meet Sly and become friends with him. And, you know, I'd be invited to parties and Christmas and stuff and uh, Elton John's on the piano for two hours one Christmas day, and there I'm holding the Oscar for Rocky. And somebody walks up to Sly, and you know, and they go, hey, "Why do you got Curic here? You know, guy's homeless and he's a loser." And wait, Sly, you don't have any other friends. You got to keep bringing him up here. And I'm like, "I'm right here. I can hear you." They go, I don't care. You're a loser. And Sly said, "You got no idea who this kid is, man. In his head, he already is a success. You can't convince him he's not. And it's just a matter of time that his results will catch up with his mindset." And, you know, I just was back at Slice House uh, watching the Super Bowl uh, with him and had lunch with him and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so I was like, man, Kirk, I told you back in the day, man, it was just a matter of time. And if you haven't done that, and I, and I thanked him and he said, you know, if it wasn't me, Kirk, you would have found somebody like me because that's what you did, man. You look for people that could help you move forward because, you know, everybody, if you want to succeed in life, you network and you're you found the people. And if it wasn't me, it was somebody else. But because you had the correct mindset, people like me were willing to help you because we all started there. And so that part I had, it's just, you know, um, I would say the worst time that was after the helicopter crash because I kind of lost all that because it felt like um, the world took that away from me. But in order to get myself back on track after drugs up my nose and a gun in my mouth every night and the rest of those things is I, I started coming back to going, wait a minute, if I want things to change, I got to change. The world's not going to change and the helicopter crash is going away. And I gave up cocaine and cigarettes and alcohol abuse and all that stuff by changing myself. But I've always had the mindset. There, there was a time where you said daily you were putting a 357 Smith & Weston in your mouth. But obviously, mm -hmm. because you are here on this show, you didn't pull the trigger. What would you say to a guy who's in that dark place today, Kirk, who's sitting there at home with that Smith & Weston in their lap? When you look back on that time, what got you through it? What would you say to that guy or girl? Well, there's a couple pieces. One of them is that, you know, the weird part about it is because I was so trained by doing it consistently is I still read my goals every day, you know, and I still read some affirmations every day because I was just trained in habit to do that. But the, the biggest part was that I had a new thought. You know, one day I woke up and realized that your life's not your own. You know, there's people who love you and care about you. And there's people that you don't even know about, you know, that you've helped out or you've changed their life or if you, you know, curb them from doing suicide. It could be the checkout person at the grocery store that you were nice to one day. And that one moment changed their, their destiny, you know, where they, instead of doing something dark, did something better. And so I didn't want that to be my legacy that here I was, you know, a guy who had promise and, and uh, potential, and now I'm just another statistic of person who threw it all away. And I thought about that, you know, God, you know, I'm not a religious person, so I'm God, I'm talking about the power that organizes universe, you know, is that has a sense of humor. And with my luck, when the gun goes off, I'm probably not going to kill myself. I'm going to shoot my spinal cord out be in a wheelchair and be the first person to live to 250 years old, you know, just a, and, you know, I said this in an audience in Melbourne in front of 4,000 people and 
afterwards, I was in a foyer, you know, signing some books and taking some pictures of people. And a guy rolled up in his wheelchair and he said, hey, you know what? You know your story? I tried to kill myself with a knife, cut my throat and cut my spinal cord and I'm in a wheelchair. So what you said really happened to me. Uh, I, I just literally heard uh, from some friends of his since that time of meeting him. Now he's, his whole life's turned around. He's still in a wheelchair, but he's like, man, you know what? This is not going to be my prison. Now he's doing rugby and uh, got a successful business going and the rest of these things. Um, I would say is that you always have a tomorrow unless you pull the trigger and it can get worse. Don't play that game. I'm glad I'm not successful at everything in life, like suicide. Um, that uh, it, it was a dark place, but you don't have to be in a dark place to succeed. You can use other people's examples um, where you go, you know what? It can't get worse than this. I'm going to turn this around. And you start working on yourself and you start acknowledging yourself for everything you're doing approximately right. Quit criticizing yourself. And you, you'll, your brain, again, will automatically start to move towards that what's feeling good. And then one day, it's not too far down the track, you go, man, I am feeling a little bit better. And then it gets, wow, I am feeling good. Now, wow, I am feeling great. And it just gets better and better. And that's the consistent improvement that happens by just changing direction. Um, you know, you got a shot. Go for it. Um, yeah, it's tough. All right. Deal with it. It's not what happens. It's what do you do with what happens? And so you got to you got to change the direction. But one day, you know, you'll be the person that people will ask you for help. And you got to look, be that visionary and see that self in yourself. And I've heard you say it was a nice quote. You said, be the person who would do these things. Is that about creating an identity for yourself, Curie? Because it's been a bit of a theme for us the last six months with sports psychologists and psychoanalysts is this whole issue today we face about identity. Being being the person who would do these things, is that in your mind a step towards that identity? Well, it's a great question because that is the most powerful thought you can have. By the way, the most powerful two words are I am because it is your identity. In life, most people wish really big, but they expect very little. Raise your expectations on yourself. Raise your identity of who you expect to be. Because when you uh, are expecting to be that person, you will act like that person, and that will produce that result. So it's biblical, by the way. As a man thinketh in his heart of hearts, so is he. Not will be, is he. So that means how you think about yourself consistently is your identity. It's your identity that creates your beliefs. It's your beliefs that become your behaviors. Your behaviors are shown through your actions, and your actions produce the results. So all the sports teams I've worked with, um, ever, all the athletes I've worked with, every one of them is one. I have a solid gold record. How do I do that? Well, because I don't even know the sport most of the time. With the women's beach volleyball team that I took to win the gold medals at the Sydney Olympics, for two and a half years before the Olympics, I got them to identify themselves as the gold medalist. And here we are, uh, you know, at the Olympics facing the Brazilians who beat us 16 out of 17 times leading up to the Olympics. We're five points behind at match point, which means we're one point away from losing. And this is where most person would say, oh, shoot, we lost. But the girls said, we're gold medalists, man. Let's turn it on. And they turned it on. We took it away from the Brazilians two matches in a row and won the gold medals. See, that's that willing to do just a little bit more than everybody else is willing to do produces the result. But that's going to come from that identity. That's who I am. So you can't wait until you have the results. 
to identify yourself as that person. You have to identify yourself as that person now. So it's the be, do, have model. Be the person now, because then you'll do the things and that will produce the result. If I just take you back a second there to that story of the Australian women's beach volleyball team, it was Natalie Cook and Kerry Pothurst. Mm-hmm. I remember doing a speaking job with Kerry, oh, gee, it was a charity gig maybe five or six years ago, and Kerry either told the audience or told me, I forget how I heard about it, but she talked about you getting them a wooden box. Just tell us, just take us back to that part because this is a really interesting piece. I think this is, although it's, I mean, it's gold in a way, but it actually is gold, is that you, you gave them a symbol that, help them understand some two and a half years before the games that they were gold medalists. To me, that's really powerful, Kirk. How did you do that? What was, the, what was the process, the system, and how did you move those girls from being a team into being gold medalists in their mind before the actual tournament? Well, one of the things I made them do is buy their display cases for the gold medals two and a half years before the Olympics. And they said, why are we buying them now? And I said, well, if you really thought that you were a gold medalist, wouldn't you have a display case to show your medals off? And they said, well, yeah, we'll get it. We'll get it once we, you know, when we win. I said, see, now you're saying if you win. But I am a gold medalist. That person would have a display case. And they're like, right, right. Well, then only gold was allowed in the case because like energy attracts like energy. So the girls borrowed uh, borrowed gold medals from other athletes. They put gold jewelry in there. Natalie Cook went as far as buying a gold car, gold phone, gold toothbrush, gold razor. She even washed with Palmolive gold soap. And it's a true story. Uh, I, she put a gold medal uh, made out of tinfoil on her mirror with a green ribbon. So as she brushed her teeth, it was as a gold medalist. I made him practice the national anthem. I made him, you know, uh, visualize standing on the podium, getting the medal put around her neck, waving to the audience. Uh, they had to sign autographs, Olympic gold medalist, 2000. People are like, it's only 1998. How is that possible? <laughs> so the girls started being in advance. Well, when the girls got the medals and they're waving to the audience, they had this really unique look on their face, right? So I asked the girls about it in the dressing room afterwards. And they said, you know, Kirk, it's weird. It's just like we remembered it. See, they had never done it before, but because they rehearsed it over and over and over in their head, it was just like they'd been there before. See, because the brain doesn't know the difference between what's real or what's vividly imagined. And that's why all great achievers are visionaries. They see themselves as that person right now. They talk about that all the time. They, they focus on that. They're excited about that. They're passionate about it. And then guess what? Because that's what you are, you act like it. And that's, again, that be, do, have model. And so the, you know, the girls, the funny part was when I first uh, started working with them, um, when I asked them what they were going to do with their medals, Carrie said, I'm going to hide it in the bottom of my dirty laundry so nobody steals it. I go, wow, your brain's really excited about that medal, you know. Um, (laughs) But, see, having a display case. Now, by the way, uh, the girls have had their medals uh, resurfaced you know, replated because um, they've been dented, they've been bitten, they've been dropped. Because they just throw that metal around everybody's neck, you know. And so they're not scarce about it. Because the one thing I taught them is that the metal is only a trophy. Um, the gold medal that you earn is in your heart. 
nobody can ever steal that from you. That's how you played the game in life, you know? And, um, and I just saw Kara, she just came to one of our programs in Sydney, uh, on my, on the unstoppable you tour. And, um, I said, Kara, did you bring your medal? So we, if people can get a picture and she's like, why, uh, you know, if you would have told me you wanted, I, you know, should have told me, you told me years ago that I would want to be carrying it for the rest of my life. And I don't, I said, no, Kara, I'm just, just checking to see in case somebody <laughs> wants a photo with you. I, but when I first met you, you know, you're talking, oh, my God, I'll carry this thing for the rest of my life. And I said, no, you won't. It's a trophy. It's, it has. No, by the way, even if you didn't win the match, you can still walk home golden because of how yeah. you played the game with no excuses. And part of the game for you, Kurik, is living, living our life in the context of our values. And yet mm. people, I think people will write values they will think about their values, but then they forget them or it gets tough and they get pushed aside or they're just too busy and we don't go back to them. How do you, how do you ensure that the values we live by in the con- – it's such a beautiful term. We live in the context of our values. In this changing, fast-paced day and age, how do we keep it front of mind? How do we keep it in our heart so it's it's there for us to call upon in every moment? Well, a couple of ways. Number one is the the question that you asked is the question is you know how can I how can I like for if you have a goal or whatever you know or you have a business opportunity sitting in front of you and you go okay how can I do this while living within the context of my values just by asking a question your your subconscious mind will know the list right off the bat. And that's a more powerful question than can I do this or not? Or how can I do this? Because you might say, how can I do this? And it says, okay, sacrifice time with the kids and and your partner and work 18 hours a day. And you're like, well, I'm not interested in that. Or sadly, some people actually go do that. But if I ask, how can I do this while living within the context of my values? It's a more specific question. So the strategies are more specific because the answers are. And so then you figure out how to leverage yourself or how to, you know, just because the question is going to give you a more detailed answer. That's a more detailed strategy. The other thing is that I have what I call my eyes um, up on my wall and I read them every day with passion and enthusiasm. And my IMs are my values. So I am a a, a loving uh, partner and husband you know, I am a great loving dad who loves spending time with his kids. I am peaceful, calm, and centered. Um, I even have up there, I am a black belt, uh, which, because I, like I said, I train in Aikido. Now, my grading is actually four weeks from now. I've been training for 10 years. But, see, I want to be that person now because then I'll act like that person and produce that result again. Well, that's the same thing with your values. If you, I am loving, you'll a person who identifies themselves as their values will just consistently act that way. And that's why my book is called how would love respond and love is capitalized because it's an identity. If you identified yourself as love, how would you participate differently in life? Would you, would you not spend time with your kids? Would you allow yourself to be fat and broke and smoke cigarettes? Of course not. That's not how love responds. Love would want you to have everything you want and be happy and healthy and, Love would want other people because love abundant. I want to talk about Aikido for a second. And I know you started doing Aikido and then like any high achiever, wanted, like he wanted as soon as possible. So you went to your sensei, I think his name is David, and said, okay, how long is this going to take? How do I short circuit it? What did he say? <laughs> 
Uh, first, let me uh, give you a little backstory on uh, Sensei David. Is you know he's old school. You know he learned from Sensei Shioda, who was Morhei Yoshiba's number one student. Sensei Shioda is the founder of Yoshikan, which is the big body of Aikido. You know, and so he's very old school. And so I said to him, I said, "How long does it take to get a black belt?" He said, oh, eight to ten years." And I said, "What if I work extra hard and try to speed up?" He goes, 15 years." <laughs> I said. Why is it going to take longer? He goes, because you're trying to shortcut it. He goes, it is what it is. And I said, okay. And I said, can I ask you, Sensei, how many people have come through the dojo? And he said, oh, about 3,000 in those days. And I said, all right. And I saw the black belt roster board, you know, where people's names are up there who've earned their black belt. And there in those days, there was probably about 30. And I said, well, what's the difference? And he said, they kept showing up. I said, but how did they get their black belt? He goes, they kept showing up. I can do that. Um, you know, so through my 10 years of grading or training, I, I blew a knee out. I had knee surgery. I've had ribs broken. I've dislocated shoulders. And again, it was mostly me doing it, not other people doing it to myself because I started at 47. Most people started like 14. Um, but you know what? I keep showing up. And I'm, like I said, I'm four weeks out from my grading. When you get your first black belt, it's called Shodan which translates in Japanese to the beginning, which means now you're just getting started, um, which now I'm really starting to understand it is that because now you're just starting to get the foundational tools so that you can start really building on that. Um, and people say, well, what happens if you uh, don't pass? And I go, I show up on Monday and I keep training. They go, well, what happens if you do pass? I show up on Monday and I keep training. Nothing changes besides my gi is closed with a different color belt. And I hold myself to a higher standard. It's the only difference. And it's metaphoric for life. Because Aikido, AI means to be in harmony with. Key is energy. And Tao means the path or the way of life. So it's to be in harmony with energy as a way of life. So it's not just about Budo, a martial art. It's about life. Kirik, why are you interested in the samurai? It's something that you seem to have had an interest in for quite a while why the interest? What's what's the great lesson you have taken from the samurai that you apply to yourself as a man today? That's an awesome question. You know, the, the best samurais in the world were actually like Zen Buddhist priests. Um, you know, they didn't want to fight. You got to remember, the guy you were going up against also had a very sharp sword and was also very trained in it. So that wouldn't be very intelligent to go, hey, I'm so great at it. Um, let's let's go to combat. They did. They were very spiritual, peaceful people, but they weren't going to be victims. Um, and and so you know, sometimes you got to go to battle. But Morhei Yoshiba, the founder of Aikido, he said that he talked about the oneness and that if you kill your opponent, it's like killing part of yourself. Um, so the mastery is is turn to your enemies into your allies. Anybody can fight, but the true master is. You know, the one who can turn their enemies into their allies. And so for me, again, it's it's learning about, uh, you know, having less conflict in life and, you know, um, be, quit being pissed off at stuff because at the end of your life, it's going to have no value and spend more time with the people you love and you care about and quit wasting your time uh, being irritated with people that, you know. And by the way, some of those people are going to be family members because you, know, you pop out of the same womb with your brothers and sisters doesn't mean you're always going to be the best of friends with those people. You know, you, you're going to earn your circle and then it's about maintenance that circle. And so it is, it's a metaphor for me about, um, in Aikido, we connect, we blend and we redirect. I guess that's the foundation of understanding the martial art. 
and it's about life as well. Instead of taking your um, conflicts head on and taking a hard blow by them, is connect with them, with them, and then redirect that energy to something positive. Um, and that's what my life's uh, been about now. And that's how I got over the helicopter crash and everything else is 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 I connected with it. Instead of uh, saying it's the worst time of my life, I looked at what's great about it. It just sounds weird, but then if you ask that question, you start finding answers. And what was great? I lived. Well, that was a pretty good one. Or uh, at least my best friend who died in my arms, died in my arms, not in a stranger's arms. And um, I did save two people's lives that day. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of things. When you look for the greatness, you find it. And all of a sudden you're transforming, you're redirecting your meaning of even the darkest moments of your life. And your mom, when she gave birth to you, you got to remember is, you know, like I watched my son being born and his head decide, you know, not only did he have a big head, but he put his fist next to his head because he thought he was funny on the way out. And, you know, that came out of a part of her body that was normally the size of an eye socket. Now, as a guy, if that came out of our backside, we would never eat solid food again and we'd be pissed off at the kid <laughs> for the rest of our life. <laughs> but the moment mom makes con eye contact with that baby when it comes out, goes to, from unbelievable pain to unconditional love in a millisecond. They don't remember the pain. So our mom taught us transformation, that you can turn your darkest moments into your brightest moments with a decision. And the most powerful force in the universe is love. And that's what our mom taught us right from the very beginning is transformation. That you can turn anything into something great. See, that's how nature works. Taught us right from the beginning. And that's what I'm, I work on now every day is no matter what happens is how can I turn this into something great? One of those difficult moments for you, if we just stay on mums and dads for a minute, one of those difficult moments for you where you had to use these tools when your dad died of cancer, Kurik, when you, when you think back to your dad as a man, if you could do something differently then based on what you've learned today, how would you approach being a kid again? If I could do that, look, as a teenager, you know, I said some things to my dad that still to this day I feel the impact of. You know, it was just me being an idiot teenager with a smart mouth. You know, I love my dad. He was my hero. I'm my dad's only child. My mom raised seven. She was a little more friendly. Um, <laughs> but uh, she was married multiple times. But my dad, um, you know, I said, I said some, like, in one day, when I was, I think I was like 12 years old, I said, Dad, I want to be an actor. I decided what I want to do with my life. You know, do you think I can make it? And he said, you got no drive, no talent, no determination. Um, you know, you should find a normal job, you know, blah, blah, something stable. And I said, what, like you, an unemployed construction worker? That was, was beyond, you know, that was just me being an idiot teenager. And it, I saw the impact of how bad that hurt my dad. Now, he had, it was a time when America was in recession, my dad was doing everything to get a job. It wasn't his fault, you know, it was just a really bad economic situation in the States in those days. And here I took a cheap shot at my dad. And the moment those words came out of my mouth, I already regretted it because it was just too much. If I go backwards, I would take those things away. But in its own way, those things have um, taught me that, you know what? Uh, you might want to think before you speak. And, you know, you can say something that can hurt worse than a punch. So, you know, um, learn how to be a better person. 
And because of that, I spent a lot of my time uh, with my father when he was alive after that, always going beyond the call of duty. Well, I, what I mean by that is going uh, over and above to show my dad how much I loved him and appreciated him um, all the way up to the very end, including the last conversation I had with my dad, which was I got a call from the hospice nurse saying your dad's going to pass away. And I was literally planning on getting on a plane the next day to go to uh, or two days later to go to the States to see him. And I'm talking to him every day. I talked to him that day. He sounded fine. But uh, all of a sudden he took a turn for the worse. I said, can I talk to my dad? She said, he's too weak. And I said, it doesn't matter. I just need to talk to him. And I said, dad, I always love you. I always will. You know, um, I will always make you proud. Don't struggle, dad. Go to peace. Don't suffer. My dad smiled, closed his eyes, and passed away. First, first thing I asked is, what's great about this? My dad didn't suffer. I never got to see my dad struggling. Um, I got to have those final words with him. Our relationship is always complete. So if you ask the question, you start getting the answers. Karik, what belief system are you looking to instill into your own children? Because you can now take all these learnings from your own past all the learnings you've seen from others. What, what belief system are you looking to instill in your own children? To understand the purpose of life, uh, which is to enjoy it. Um, if you do that, win. At the end of your life, you look back and you go, this is if you do anything else but that, you're going to have to come back and do it all over again and you'll step in the same dog doo-doo that you stepped in last time until you choose your path. You know, People always want to tell you how grass is greener on the other side of the fence. It's only because there's more dog poo over there fertilizing it. It is right <laughs> in your life. Make it awesome. You know, find reasons to be happy. Don't look for reasons to be pissed off. Don't look for reasons to, you know, be angry at yourself even. And, and so with our kids, one of the things that we do is we never go on a character attack. So we never call them bad boys or bad girl, or bad boy or bad girls. We, if there's a behavioral thing, we say, I always love you. I always will. And that behavior, we got to work on that. That's not working here. So it's always about a behavior. It's never about them as people. And so that the love is never taken away from them. It's an unconditional love they always get from us. And that, you know, uh, be happy. Let's always look for reasons. And people who in your life, friends at school, who uh, don't treat you right, find friends that do. Be happy. Don't be upset how people are treating you. Don't give them the power. There is so much unhealthiness in the world we're not well, we're not sleeping well, relationships are suffering, depression's never been higher. So in the whole, the statistics of normality, which is unhealthy, bad relationships, stressed, all that's growing. Do you think it's almost a point now where we need to become a non-conformist and not conform to what society is now saying is average. You know, I think it's always been that way, actually. You know, is there's a, a majority and a minority. Um, you know, m the number one most consumed drug on the planet are called antidepressants. Um, that means that most people are taking them. So you have to be a person. You know, the, the, the minority, you know, the reason why, by the way, it's the minority that changes the world. It's the majority that waits for it to be changed. You know, it's a victim mentality. And... What makes us minority is that we don't think like the tribe, we don't act like the tribe, and that's why we produce results that the tribe never gets. And so if you look at, you know, the first Apple commercial, you know, it was here's to the crazy ones. 
And it's about, you know, Einstein and Edison and Gandhi and all, you know, Martin Luther King and all these people who were different and originally were the weird ones. I mean, if you think about Edison trying 10,000 attempts to make the light bulb, well, I'm sure that wasn't 10,000 attempts in one day. I'm guessing it was probably over a decade. And he had investors and board on his company and, and even staff who were saying, really, we're going to keep doing this? But aren't you glad he didn't quit? Um, or Sloan, you know, he's 5'7", half his mouth is paralyzed. Um, you know, when they pulled him out of his mom, they cut a nerve in his face. And he writes a script called Rocky, and they were offered him $261,000 in 1975 when he just sold his dog for $25 at 7-Eleven. And he turns it down because they say they're going to have Burt Reynolds play Rocky Balboa. And he's like, I will eat the script first. That's not happening. You know, you know, but he hang, hung in there. Well, by the way, Sly just finished Rocky 9. And right now wow. he's doing Rambo 5 at 72 <laughs> years old. Right? They told him uh, uh, 10 years ago, they said, hey, Sly, you know, you're in your 60s. You're an action hero. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, well, who wants an old action hero? And he goes, that's a great idea. Let's call it The Expendables. That's a billion-dollar franchise. Because he thought differently than the masses, you know, and he's the biggest star Hollywood's ever produced. And at 72 years old, he's doing back-to-back movies and he's buffed. Arnold's buffed. You know, they changed the paradigm. They changed the belief system. Or Roger Bannister broke the sub-four-minute mile. Then 35 other people the same year could do it. Why? Because he thought differently than the tribe who told him it was impossible. So you got to be that person. You got to, there it is again. You got to go, you know what? I'm that guy. If Sly can do it, I can do it. If nobody's done it, I'm going to be the first guy to do it. I mean, think about the Wright brothers. For 60,000 years, the aboriginal people were on this planet. I'm guessing some of them dreamed about flying, you know, um, you know, seeing birds and whatever. 60,000 years of human existence, nobody did it. And then two bicycle repairmen figure it out. Nobody did it before, and they were the first. But they had to think differently than the masses. It's interesting, Kirik, because a lot changed for me when I first met you back in Hawaii, which I'm figuring now would have been back in the mid to late 90s. Yeah. And we were at a Tony Robbins event somewhere in Hawaii and I remember Mm -hmm. doing a training session with you out in the grassy knoll one morning just after dawn and I still remember it to this day and I've sort of followed your career ever since and – I know you wouldn't remember that, but I, I vividly I remember. No, it was Kona. <laughs> that was Kona, Hawaii. Yeah. And we were talking before we started recording with Robbo about doing the firewalk. Now, I recall we did a 40-foot firewalk on one of the last nights on the island. And since then, because you're one of the head trainers for Tony, you, you do firewalks a lot, and I know you have the world record for it. Why... <laughs> Why is it so powerful? Why is it so why is why do people get so much emotion, drive and it's something which actually changes their life? What is it about the firewalk? Well, it it, it can be the firewalk. I mean, I think people cross broken glass. I've done 115 skydives in my life, you know. It, it, I mean, there's some people that's given birth. I mean, by the way, I'd walk on fire any day of the week. I don't I don't think I could ever get ready to give birth. Um, even if I was a woman, I, you know, I'm like, man, that's way, that's really pushing it. Stand in front of it and you feel the heat up by your face 
And I will tell you, the number one thought people have is, you know, I know Keurig has taken tens of thousands of people across safely and kids and paraplegics and all that stuff, but I'm the one person who's going to mess this up. I'm going to be, you know, <laughs> it's funny how many people actually think that. Then they go, you know what? I just want to see what it feels like to be unstoppable. I just want to see, you know, I'm going to take that shot. And it's always about that first step. The rest of it's just follow through, but it's that first step because it's like stepping out of the plane when you're first becoming a skydiver, you know, that if your one butt cheek is still sitting on the side of that plane, you know, and you're not skydiving, but the moment you're not that one step out of the plane, the rest is all experience, but it's that first step. So, um, once they make it across, and the, the biggest experience people say, it's like walking on cool popcorn. They don't even notice the heat. They felt it up by their face, but not on their feet. And they make it across, and they go, man, if I can do that, that I thought was impossible, what else can I do that's, that I thought was impossible? It's been holding me back from everything I want in life. And so it's a, it's a reference point for the rest of your life to go on. I'm a firewalker, man. I'm doing this too. I'm starting my business or I'm asking that woman out, uh, you know, and, and all of a sudden your life starts changing because you take that first step again. And now you have a belief system that if I can do this, I can do that. So Keurig, there's a, a show that Robbo works on. What's it called, Robbo? The House of Wellness? The House of Wellness on Channel 7, Sunday afternoons at midday. There's a little plug. <laughs> now, yeah. on that program, you took the host, whose name is Gian Rooney, a lovely lady, and Gian is an Olympic medalist, has competed on the world stage against the best at their best and won in the pool. And you would think that a person like that doesn't need to get that first step done. Actually, can we have a listen to it, Robert? Can you just play a little piece about Gian doing the fireball? I want you to see who you are on the other side. Make that decision right now. Breathe where you breathe, though, and you could do anything you want in your life. Yes! 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 Go! Yes! 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 I really wasn't expecting to be emotional. It was a really powerful, overwhelming feeling. So that was Gian Rooney, Olympic swimmer for Australia. So it wasn't the first step, Keurig, but obviously hearing that, the firewalk unlocks something. What is it do you think that unlocked for Gian? Well, one of the things that I had her do is, you know, write down things that she wants to get rid of in life. Uh, you know, fears, limiting beliefs, habits, whatever it is. You know, now I don't, I don't look that over. That's a personal thing. And then they throw that in the fire, and that's what you're going to walk on is that garbage you want to let go. Of. But also, she wrote down her goals about what she wanted to move towards. So we did two ends of the pole: what you want to get rid of, and where do you want to move towards. So it's it's that for her. But again, is you know the the little girl in her, so let's take out gold medalist and achiever and TV host and all that stuff, is that little girl in her. You know, we all have fear. We all have doubt. We all have insecurity. Everybody does. Gian, after she firewalked, you know, she said to me, she said, man, I wish I would have had you at the Olympics, you know, lean up to it. I said, <laughs> ma'am, you already won the gold medal. I don't think you actually needed me. And she said, you know what? It would have been a whole different experience, though. Um, yeah. I would have I just enjoyed it more. And, you know, I, I've heard from her on email and, and uh, on social media and stuff, and she's still loving it. And you can see her taking it to the next level. But if you go on YouTube, you'll see a segment I did years ago with a Today Tonight. 
in which uh, the legendary cricketer Max Walker uh, firewalked with me. And he wrote about me in one of his books uh, before he passed away. But, you know, they asked him, what are you doing here? Like, you're Max Walker. And he said, you know what? There's always another level you can take it. And, man, he, his son's firewalked with him. And that, that bonding of them doing that experience together was another level of it. Um, so it's, it's – and, by the way, I've done – personally, I've done hundreds of firewalks. Every time I run a firewalk program, I firewalk. Um, and every time I attach new things to it. Don't get complacent. It's fire, you know, and have a meaning to it. Because, again, people go, oh, I've done hundreds. You know, let's just do it for everybody. All right, but life is like that, you know. I mean, if you treat your life like this is the first time you've got to do it and the last time you'll get to do it, well, the first part of it, you know, you're going to be in awe and wonder, and the last part is going to be gratitude and appreciation, and I live my life that way. Every morning I wake up, I'm bored. And when I go to sleep, I die. So it's about what are you going to do with your life today? It's all today. I don't know if I get tomorrow. So I'm living it all today. And that's why I live in awe and wonder and appreciation and gratitude. And I think a lot of people like Gian, that's what she got out of the firewalk is a whole nother level of appreciation and when wonder for life about the magic it holds. It's fair to say and with this interview so far, and I'm conscious of your time, so I'll, I'll just start to wrap this up. But it's it's fair to say that people people get a lot from your work when it's time for them to change, to make a change, either further improvement or to change something. And I've heard you say that people need you need people to get to a point where they say, "I'm done, I'm done, this is it, I'm done." How do you get people to that place? To not only say it, but to mean it, embed it, and then do something sure. with it and and stay the course. What's your process for that? Well, the easiest way to do that, honestly, you could do it right now today, and that is, you know, it's called future pacing. And just is look at your life on the, you know, the trajectory that it's on right now, you know, um, not spending time with your kids, not, you know, taking care of your body, you know, your health and those things and not uh, producing wealth in your life, whatever that is. And follow it down your journey and look at and think about the worst case scenario. Because by the way, that happens. You know, I mean, it, it happens. I know people who their kids have gotten secondhand smoke cancer because they smoke cigarettes, even though their kids didn't. And the kids got the cancer. I did a movie with James Woods and John Lithgow about two famous Hollywood writers who used to write the TV show Columbo. Um, and one of them smoked and one of them didn't. And the other guy got cancer from his smoking. And that was his best friend. And the movie called The Boys is about that story. You know, and the, the guy wrote his own story about how he killed his friend with secondhand smoke. So if you think about that worst case scenario, your brain, you know, when it gets dark like that, your brain goes, that's it. I'm done. See, that's what happened with Scrooge, by the way. You know, Scrooge, they showed him the ghost and he saw finally the ghost of the future. And he saw how dark it's going to be if he doesn't change his ways. And when he woke up and he had Christmas all over again, he's like, that's it. I'm doing this different. That's what you have to do. Because most people, they're living their life like there's no ramification to it. You know, they're okay, I'm still okay today. Think of the worst case scenario. And you go, that's it, I'm done. Um, and, and that was the helicopter crash for me, you know, thinking about, you know, shooting myself and being in a wheelchair and what, my, what would happen to my mom 
you know, in those days. And my dad thinking, where did I go wrong? And my son and the suffering they would have for the rest of their lives because I killed myself, all those things. I'm like, that's it. I'm done. I literally unscrewed a broom pole out of a broom. I held it over my head like a samurai warrior, cut a line in the sand in my backyard in California. And I said, once I step over the line, I'm done. I stepped over the line. I gave up cocaine. I gave up cigarettes. I gave up alcohol abuse. I gave all my guns away. Not to just people wandering down the street. I give them away to gun collector friends of mine <laughs> and changed my life. Literally, cold turkey, done. No cravings, no blowback, nothing. I'm like, done. Because I, when you make that decision, your life changes. And that's the thing. Can't be a should. Oh, I should do this. It's got to be a must. To wrap this up, this little shenanigan we have here today, Kurik, you have talked about some pretty successful people. So... Tony Robbins, Chuck Norris, Sly, Arnie. There's been an impressive list of people you've rubbed shoulders with in your time. What do you think is the number one personality trait of the successful people like that you meet that you most admire and want to replicate? Well, and it's one of them that I've I probably had, but I certainly um, always am conscious of, of replicating and, you know, adopting myself. And that is that I haven't peaked yet. You know, I haven't peaked until somebody puts their foot in my backside and pushes me in the dirt hole and starts burying me. You know, until then I haven't peaked. That it's about reinventing myself, you know, themselves or reinventing myself that, okay, what's next? I don't want to, you know, I don't want to rest on who I used to be or even who I am now. It's about a constant evolution and reinventing myself. And that's, that's why I love, you know, my friendship with Sly for the last 30 years, you know, and because that guy just keeps reinventing himself. And here he is at 72 and, like I said, doing Rambo 5. Um, you know, who even thought Rambo would make it to 3, let alone 5 and Rocky 9 because he just finished Creed 2. He's always reinventing himself. And Arnold, uh, you know, Schwarzenegger reinvents himself. And so and that's what keeps us fresh. You know, that's what keeps us growing and evolving is that you go, okay, did that. What's the next level of me now? What else can I do or what else do I want to do before the ride's over? Because I believe for me that I want to jam in as many new experiences as I can possibly get before life is over. And that's my mission is, you know, not the same thing over and over again, but what new can I do? What What's the next thing I can do? Yeah, I heard a, a great quote on a show you were on some time back and you said, we're all looking to achieve happiness instead of just being happy. <laughs> is that an observation that you think is becoming more profound with the pace of life and the style of life we have today, Curie, that everyone's chasing it rather than just, doing it? Yes. And Buddha said that there is no way to happiness. I mean, there's nothing you can do or achieve that will give you happiness. He said, so there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. And when you decide to be happy, it's actually easy to achieve. Um, So I find five cents on the ground. I'm excited. I celebrate stuff. People are like, it's only five cents, dude. You can't buy even two cents with five cents these days. I'm like, not with that attitude. But look, I'm asking for abundance, and I just got free money. I didn't have to work for that. I, okay, I had to bend down and pick it up. But you know what? I'm celebrating because if you can't celebrate five cents, you won't celebrate five million because in the universe's eyes, it's all the same thing. Um, and so, you know, it's it's about living in that, again, that appreciation and gratitude. Uh, and just what am I happy about today? We all know what you're pissed off about. Just ask your friends. They've been hearing it all day long, Right. 
is what are you happy about? What are you grateful for? And that's what I, I that's what, that magic question again. What's great about this? You know, again, with Aikido, you know, getting thrown around and locks put on you and all the other things that you do in martial arts, it'd be easy to quit because you can relate it to being pain. But instead, I come out of the dojo and I celebrate. And then I write down in my journal every night after training is what I do great today. How can I make it better? And by what percent did I improve by? So as you see, I'm always finding the happiness in anything and in everything because nothing really has a meaning. We give it the meaning. So choose a meaning that feels good and empowers you, not one that makes you feel bad and disempowers you. While, while we're on the subject of quotes, I, I just want to throw something at you quickly because there's one, sure. quote, there's one quote that we love on this show. In fact, it's in our show notes weekly. And I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on it and see, A, whether you agree and B, whether there's anything else you would add to it or C, if you could. Do, do you mind if I throw it at you? I'd love to. Okay, it's from, it's from Hunter S. Thompson and it says, life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. <laughs> I love it. You know, I, I actually regularly say is that, um, you know, me being an organ donor or being a donor at the end of my life, there's no point. They're going to basically just have me in a bucket and throw me in the garbage. There's not going to be anything left. Uh, I'm just going to be a, I'm just going to be a bucket of burnt cinder because I go for it. I mean, like you see me in the dojo, I go for it. And the guys I train with, they go, you know, there's something wrong with you, man. You get thrown on the ground really hard. You get up smiling. I go, because you ain't going to beat me. You might beat that, you know, uh, like in a fight, I might lose the fight but you ain't ever going to take my spirit from me. That ain't happening. And, you know, that's what makes me dangerous in life, you know, because I'm always going to have that spirit, but I'm going for it. You know, God gave me this body to use it, not give it back. And it's all, you know, and I've had knee surgeries and I've, you know, had all kinds of different things happen in life. Um, I'm going for it. I, I, Hey, you didn't take me out with a helicopter crash. You know, you threw your best at me, bring it on, you know, because it's the challenges of life that give your life value. So bring it on and don't, you know, um, God would never give me a challenge I couldn't handle. And the rewards are always in proportions to the test. So you bring it on. Don't give me no small piddly stuff. You bring it. And here I am, man. I'm still standing. And if if this is life, it's been awesome. And if it's over today, I got no regrets because I've lived it and I continue to live it. Kirik, it's been a real treat having you on the line today because I feel like we've, um, I feel like I've taken me back 20 years ago to when I first spent time with you in Kona. Yeah. And what I love about this show is when you meet people who put the rubber on the road, they don't just talk about or write a book based on the people's materials, but it's someone who has got content, philosophy, stories, experience, and they're actually doing it. And now having watched your stuff for 20 years, you are a guy who does it. And knowing a little about you, and I've never asked this question of anybody before, but I'm very curious about this. How did you prepare for this interview today? I didn't. Um, what I mean, well, I take that back. I live my life. And, uh, you know, whenever I get interviewed, I do a lot of media and I do a lot of interviews and stuff. And they go, do you want me to send you the questions? I go, no, no, because that's not life. Just ask me whatever you want to ask me. Um, I have nothing to hide. If you're going to ask me something like super personal, um, you know, that is across the line for me, I'll just tell you that I'm not going to answer that. But beyond that, 
is that I, I like doing interviews this way where it just comes straight from my soul and my heart. I'm not prepared. I'm not trying to, I don't have, as you can tell, if you listen back to this, I don't have perfect diction. I still have my uh, improper <laughs> Chicago urban accent, you know, and I, <laughs> I cut off vowels and letters and consonants and stuff is I, I don't care about that. Um, the one thing I think people get from me more than anything else is my essence is that I'm just as real and raw as I can get. And if I can do it, anybody can do it in any part of my life because it's not me. It's a formula. It's based in the laws of science and everything else. Um, and I, I'm just honored that you interview me because I, I, I pinch myself every day that I get to do what I love doing. And actually somebody pays me for it. Now, you guys didn't pay me, but I, if they didn't pay me, I'd still coach. I'd still do speaking engagements. Just don't tell everybody that because I won't have a business. But um, <laughs> I love it. And and as you can see, I'm still very passionate about it after you know all these years of doing it and thousands of presentations working in 17 countries. Um, I, I, I Every speaking engagement I get, I don't care if it's 10 people, I don't care if it's thousands of people, I go out and say, matter of fact, I'll give you a funny story real fast. I was on the Gold Coast a number of years ago. There were supposed to be like 100 people showed up and one guy showed up, oh, one person. My. And the promoters were feeling terrible. And I said, sir, can I ask you a favor? He goes, I know you're going to cancel. I said, no, no, I'm just asking, can we wait 10 minutes? Because this happened to me in L.A. once and 80 people came through the door because there was a, a, a truck overturned on the freeway. And people were like 10 minutes late. Can you, can you wait? And he was like, yeah, I can wait. And so 10 minutes went by and nobody showed up. And I said, sir, you might want to back up a row because I, I'm a little high energy. And he's like, what? And I gave him a two-hour presentation solo. The guy was in tears. He couldn't believe it. I said, wow. sir, I never, I never penalize people who show up for people who don't. Kirik, thank you for being so generous with your time and your... Um, your wisdom and your honesty and uh, honestly, mate, it feels, it's really quite funny for me because I feel like I've rewound the clock 20 years because you sound no different, the same energy, the same passion, the same. In fact, in fact, it's probably one of the words I associate most with you is passion and it's something I learned about you many years ago and uh, we're just we're privileged to have you here, mate. Thank you. I'm honoured and if you ever want me back, uh, anytime you want, I'll uh, be honoured. Um, you know, send me, if you guys haven't got a copy, is uh, I'll send you a copy of How Would Love Respond. As a matter of fact, if you want to give a few copies out, well, just let us know how many you want. We'll send some to you. Also, I'd love to send you um, our wall art, which is uh, the quotes from How Would Love Respond that we've turned into a real oh. piece of beautiful wall wow. art. That'll so go just send me your quotes on our wall. We'll send it out to you guys. Yeah, yeah we, we got a wall of quotes. Absolutely. Well, that would and be if you're uh, up on the Sunshine Coast. Come visit. Yeah. Yeah. That would be very generous, mate. And I actually have got another half a page of questions we haven't even gotten to yet because I'm conscious of your time. It's not so, um, for you, Bert Whistle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I don't wear a watch, so I'm timeless. Yeah, <laughs> and we will get you back on again. We uh, will commit to that. The Mojo Radio Show. All right, so I'm going to take you back to the intro of this. You talked about meeting Kurek at the Tony Robbins event. Yes. I want you to tell me something, in all honesty. Is Tony Robbins as good as he says he is? Because, and I ask you this with with complete respect for Tony and and his success, but to me, when I think of Tony Robbins, it's become a, he's become a bit of a cliche. You know what I mean? And and it's just interesting to me, someone who's never done anything with him, is he as good as he in inverted commas says he is? So, the short answer is yes. Right. Let me explain. The theme we've had for the last. I don't know, what, six months around this identity. And I'm quite interested in that. So we've had these these chunks of themes that have flown through the show and it's happened organically. 
Tony has an identity which comes across as being whiz-bang, the big music, the big show, he's larger than life, and he's a big guy because I met him. He's a big guy. However, that's part of his identity. If you strip that away and go to one of his gigs and spend time in the room with him or actually listen to him when he's at his best being Tony Robbins. And, for example, if you watch the Netflix show I Am Not Your Guru, you get an insight into Tony Robbins. He is the best in the world. There's no question. His technologies, not as in digital technologies, but his means and manners of being able to control our emotions, our thoughts, to take us towards what we want in life, there is no question he is the best in the world. And he's done it so often, he can do it so quickly and deduce where people are at and help them make that change, which is what Kurik is really good at. Okay. So I agree with you. When I first went, I've, been, I've done a lot of stuff with Tony. I've done a lot of firewalks. I've done all the stuff. I've, I've pretty much done everything. I've graduated. I've even staffed for him. When I first walked into my first UPW in the Horden Pavilion in Sydney, I was like, what is this rubbish? What have I paid my money for? And I was. I was sceptical. And I was sceptical going, everyone's standing on their chairs and doing the woe clap and the music's pumping and the lights are going. And I'm thinking, and I'm just in a chair, Mr. Cat's bum, arms crossed going, I'm not into this crap. I'm serious. I could see but you doing once, that. Yeah, yeah. And once you... <laughs> Once you get through that and he starts to work and he starts to work through his technologies that sit behind all that stuff, all that is is putting you into what he calls a state to learn. It really is no different to how a school teacher does it with a year two, year three, year four, where it's about movement and learning and colour and music and all those things. That's just a learning experience. He just does it in a, in a rock concert manner. Sitting underneath that, though, is he, has, he is the master of knowing how to move you from where you are to where you want to get through, but most importantly, get the, get the crap out of the way to let the mojo fly. So, yes, he is the real deal. Am I surprised that you would think that? No. <laughs> and all I say to people, the sceptics like me, you know, I was a sceptic is you just got to go and you have to open up your mind to the possibilities and just go with it. And if you don't like it after being in the room for 16 hours, when he's on stage for 16 hours straight, when if you don't like it after 16 hours, man, go. Write to me and tell me that I'm wrong. But if you're not into it after 16 hours and you're not making significant breakthroughs is the term he would use... I'd be very surprised. 16 hours? I don't think I could stay awake that long. Well, this packet of Tim Tams certainly wouldn't last that long. <laughs> he does 16 hours straight. Wow. And I've seen him do it for four days straight. I, I've been to a gig with Tony for nine days and I think seven and a half or whatever days of that he was on the stage and he will, we will start in the morning at, I don't know, eight o'clock and we'll finish at two o'clock in the morning and everybody's pumped. I haven't got a very strong voice. I've lost my voice by day two. Just trying to yell, just trying to talk to your partner over the noise and blah, blah, blah. However, there is still stuff that I call upon today as part of my identity that I did with him 20 years ago when I met Kurt. Okay. No, 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 no kidding. However, I'll tell you, I was a sceptic when I walked in. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, there you go. 
I might uh, might take the plunge when I've got a spare 16 might or hours. Will. Well, when might I've got a spare will. 16 hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's incredible, man. How he how he keeps himself up, and he's got a room. I mean, our room had like two thousand people. How he keeps himself for that long mm. to deliver content, keep people engaged, keep them learning. Just keep mentally focused even. I mean, It's Jesus. amazing. Yeah. So um, what month next year is he on our show? <laughs> yeah. As if. <laughs> for sure. Wayne's World. Sure. The Mojo Radio Show. Now, I, <laughs> I found a newspaper clipping in one of our uh, national newspapers, and it reads... Can I read it to you? Just let me, let me okay. go. Yeah, go. Dog, D-O-double-G apostrophe S. Dog's a star of his own making. Rap superstar Snoop Dogg has received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and celebrated by giving himself a big thank you. I saw And he story. said, <laughs> I want to thank me for believing in me, the 47-year-old said at the dedication ceremony. I want to thank me for doing all this hard work. I want to thank me for having no days off. I want to thank me for never quitting. I want to thank me for always being a giver and trying to give more than I receive. I want to thank me for being me at all times. And I thought at the end of season five, before we roll into season six, I think it's great to take a, take a moment to stop down because I think that's in a way of, what you're grateful for, but in order for him to get his success, what he said is he believed in himself, he did the hard work, he didn't have a day off, he never quit, he always was a giver and he always tried to give more than he receives. And what I don't think people know about Snoop is that he also does a lot of charity work. He does a lot of work and funds and coaches and trains junior footballers in his hometown in America, in his region. Like this guy does do a lot of work for others and he works damn hard. And anybody who knows him, in fact, what's interesting, I heard someone in, uh, interviewed recently who works with Snoop Dogg and they said he'll nod off. Maybe you, did you tell me that story about him nodding off in the studio? No. <laughs> no we should nod off more often though. He does. He he will be recording and he'll just disappear and he can sleep anywhere and he just goes into a chair and he'll nod off for 20 minutes and then wake up and then keep going. Like he's, and it's, which is, this guy at the top of his game, I tell you, he, and when you break down what he does and how he does it, people talk about having 20 minute naps, no more, no less, believing in yourself. I mean, that article, I think, sums up so well what we should do at the end of season five, getting ready for season six. Can we, um, I know you, it's a lot of Snoop songs that you love dearly. Uh, what Snoop song would you play? Don't ask me a name. I couldn't tell you. Do, you. do you know the irony of all this is that Snoop Dogg plays at my house pretty much all weekend, courtesy of Tanae, because she's probably the world's biggest Snoop Dogg fan. I, I listened to the lyrics. I couldn't even tell you what the names of the songs are. Well, I'll tell you my favourite Snoop song. Okay, give me, go. Young, Wild and Free. Let's hear a bit of that. Right, see, tonight, see how much I love you. See how much I love you for bearing my children. <laughs> I played some Snoop Dogg in the Mojo Show for you. Interrupt this program to 
Joe Radio Show. Now, I got uh, an email from a good mate of ours, Mm. a guy who I really respect from a distance. (laughs) I've never met him, but I I really like the stuff he does. Mm. Uh, It's a guy called Logan Gelbrick from Deuce Gym. Do you remember Logan? Absolutely, of course I do. So Logan was on episode 179 in season five. and That's longer ago than I thought it was. Longer. That's a good Queensland term. (laughs) And um, we talked, the the thing I took from Logan, which I talk often when I'm in front of an audience about is, do you going to turn left or turn right? And turn left is the, to taking the the, the negative way, the easy way, status quo, the, the majority. If you turn right, that's going in the opposite direction where it's about performance, being at your best, holding the standard, raising your game, positivity. And I thought his stuff was terrific. We had a wonderful discussion with him. Anyway, so he wrote to me during the week and said, hey, I'm coming out to Australia during season six. Uh, do you guys want to catch up? So I thought, well, <laughs> yes. actually we do. We do. That'd be kind of cool because <laughs> we're punching way above our weight in terms of everything. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but I thought, well, let's get him on and have a catch up to see what he's going to be doing out here and chat because he's just a cool guy. So uh, do you want to give him a yell? I still got to make that techno techno remix of this Skype dial tune. <laughs> hey, it's Logan. Hey, mate, it's Gary and Robbo from Down Under on the Mojo Radio Show, mate. How you doing? Good. How you guys doing? Good. Doing good. We um we are ringing because rumor has it that you are coming to our country. The rumor is true. Uh, <laughs> just like every just just like everything else that's on the internet, you know. That's <laughs> That's how you know. All right, so Elvis is alive. Right, cool. That's right. Excellent. Yeah, if you Google it, it's it's true. That's that's a that's <laughs> words I live by, folks. Nice. Now, you, what's the story? When are you when are you coming out to Australia, and what specifically brings you to Australia? Yeah, I don't know if we actually got into this part of things on our last conversation, but uh, I teach a a seminar. It's called um we call it a summit but um it's coming to sydney uh february 2nd and 3rd and you know whereas my background is you know specific to sport and now fitness and coaching uh, the the seminar is actually an interesting sort of two-day deep dive uh, for leaders and entrepreneurs of any kind uh, i'd say you know about half the room has some sort of mm, connection to the strength and conditioning or fitness business. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a two day summit called the hold the the standard summit, which is sort of our, our motto, uh, in my business. And, uh, we use kind of the, the businesses that I have here, the gyms that I have here and the, the umbrella organization, that it is as like a case study to get into principles in group dynamics and leadership and performance. And it makes for a pretty reflective and insightful uh, couple days for folks. Do you know what's interesting that if you are a business leader, I reckon one of the challenges today is people get together, they have their offsites or their team catch-ups or whatever. They settle these grand plans down and you just know within 100 days those plans have gone out the door and they're back into the humdrum of calls, meetings, emails, distractions. And 
that when I first got you on the line in the show and we spoke about hold the standard, I don't. I, I really think that is the key to a lot of these things, Logan, because it seems we had these good intentions, but somewhere along the way we fail to to stay the course. Is that a central part of what you're doing with the summit is sort of enabling people to actually hold, set the standard, hold it, and then keep it? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, this is a great sort of backdoor way to, to uh, introduce how I sort of open the the summit, which is creating context around specifically this. Like, what is that? Like, why, why is it that we... Uh, have these good intentions, you know, to use your, your words. And then something else always gets in the way. And how I open the, the summit is addressing something that's actually quite unique about it. Um, you know, it is, you know, in the end of 2018, it is, should be known by now, at least we're in the middle of this information age where, almost everything is accessible. Uh, there aren't many secrets. Uh, and if, if there are secrets left, they're sort of like we joked about a Google search away, you know? And so it is a mistake that many of us are making in leadership or actually in any context that, it's with more sort of technical insight that we're going to solve the, the problems that ail us the most. And, and the simple dynamic that you mentioned right there where we sit down, write some intentions, or we all agree on something in our teams, and then we go out to execute it, and then something gets in the way. And it's not for, like you said, a lack of information or a lack of wanting it to happen, something else happens. And so at the beginning of the summit, uh, to sort of simplify, we talk about two different types of problem and then two different types of leadership. And one is technical, which is, you know, technical problems have known solutions, you know, so if you break your arm, there's a a subject matter expert somewhere that has this solution, you know, likely a doctor, right? And if your car breaks down, you might not have the answer, you know, um, but someone out there does. And these problems are technical and they're solved with technical means. To lead then in technical leadership would be to lead by uh, sharing information. And this is really important, but it's not that rare. You know, most seminars, that's what it is, right? You go to a marketing seminar to learn the techniques of marketing. Uh, And these things are good and they're important. You know, trust me, if you break your arm, that's an important problem. (laughs) But um, the problems that we have the hardest time solving are not technical problems and they are uh, adaptive problems and they require adaptive leadership. And this gets down to sort of like an evolution and an adaptive problem has no known answer, no Googleable answer. There is no, uh, subject matter expert who can solve it for you. 
And, uh, you know, <laughs> to just be frank, a lot of us are trying to solve these adaptive challenges just by uh, filling it with more information or more techniques. And that's, yeah. that's not – that's not going to ever work. And so what we need is this sort of transformation. And I'm sort of using a lot of like airy fairy language right now. But um, if you know how to specifically adapt and evolve and drive this sort of adaptation re required to become the person who could solve the problem or become of the mindset to deal with the challenges of the day, then you have a chance. And um, this seminar is both, um, you know, business owners could on Monday morning implement um, systems and checklists and protocols and strategies to sort of do their business better. Yes, that's technical stuff. Uh, go ahead and get it. <laughs> but I am secretly uh, there to provide the other part, which is this adaptation and not just the adaptation, but the mechanics behind that so that a leader could go back and get down to business, so to speak. You know, um, just to wrap up with the example that you gave, you know, follow through is sort of one of the things that I heard there, you know, seeing it through, you sit down and you have a plan and then we need to follow through. Well, you said it. I heard what you said. I agreed with what you said. I agree that it's a problem uh, everywhere. Most everyone would agree that they recognize it when they see it. But do you think that if we took all the case studies and all the science and even all the anecdotes and interviews about the importance of follow-up and just like printed it out, you know, 500 pages front and back, and we plopped it down on the desk of someone who doesn't really follow through well <laughs> – and they had all the time in the world to read all of that evidence, that the, the importance of follow through and the problems that come with not following through. If we gave them all that information, do you think it would solve that problem? And I think the rhetorical sort of question is like, well, obviously not. Like they also know that they should follow through. We all know that. But something else gets in the way. And so that sort of gets to the heart of why this is an important deep dive for anyone who's trying to accomplish something, especially in business. Do you know what's funny, Logan? You can start a telephone call like this with no set agenda. Yet <laughs> I find myself no, do I find myself going into these really interesting areas to ask you about. And I'm gonna bring four threads together to set this up. Reading that five hundred page front to back. We put that in front of somebody. I read a book last night called Bored and Brilliant about a journalist who was talking about the value of being bored. And she talked about the fact of how hard it is for us to read anymore because she said, let alone read 500 pages. By the time you get from the first paragraph, to the last paragraph, you've forgotten what was in the first paragraph mm -hmm. because of this constant consuming of stuff. We don't know how to concentrate and focus and we've forgotten how to read anymore. And then I hear you talk about 50% of the room is strength, conditioning, wellness people. 50% won't be. And we've had a thread through the show 
this year for whatever reason about how important identity is. And I could imagine somebody listening to you speaking going, yeah, but I've seen Logan's Insta feed. Like he's a, he's a condition, he's a strength guy. He'd go deuce gym. That's, that's not me. I'm not that guy. Yet we've got a show coming up next year from a lady called Michelle Gibbings who wrote Career Leap and she said, if you want to future-proof your career, you've got to start to play on the fringes. And so hearing you talk about the adaptive stuff makes me think, well, that's the fringes for any entrepreneur. And then the other thread that I find interesting with your your comments then is that the listener who goes, well, that's the fringe for me, but I'm probably not in the best of shape or I'm not used to being in crowds or Logan's at the top of his game, that's going to be really uncomfortable. And that's another thread we've had through the show for the last year is growth comes from getting uncomfortable. So when I hear all these things put together, this sort of stuff to me now starts to excite me where you go, I'm going to be uncomfortable, that's good, and I'm going to play on the fringes. Well, if I'm an entrepreneur running a company of some description, chances are my competition aren't playing on the fringes. And I do have to change my identity from what I think I am to start to recreate myself, which is getting uncomfortable and exciting. And then those 500 pages are still down to something where I could just sit there and listen to a guy who's at the top of his game. It's really interesting for me, like, because there are bits there that you could pull all those threads and just do an hour's show on all those bits. Yeah, there's there's so much in inside of there, uh, and you've you've actually landed right on on the mark with this comment about fringes. What was the woman's name uh, that's coming on the show again? Her name is Michelle Gibbings, and. She wrote a book called Career Leap, and it's it's currently in all the airports in Australia. I don't know if it's international, but it's in it's in the airports here, and it's about um, essentially the, her whole thing is about how do you how do you future proof your career? And I said, how do you do that? And she said, well, you got to start playing on the fringes, which is kind of where we're going. That's amazing. Okay, so the reason why I sort of bring that up is Michelle's concept. When I hear the name of the book um career leap i see this sort of like transcendence you know this sort of um skill transfer is the the language that uh, my friend carl pally and a coach would use many coaches would sort of borrow his language and this is a concept that is at the heart of what i'm talking about with adaptation because we're sort of um, you know, whether you agree or not, my opinion is that we're, we have this sort of duty to, to evolve. Uh, it used to be forced upon us, but, uh, you know, we sort of have to opt into it, um, in a modern world. But, um, you know, that process happens, you know, in your words at the fringes, I say, you know, in the, the seminar at your edge. And so it's important to, to, operate at that edge if you're interested in driving evolution now operating at that edge is critical to growth and you can look at i like to look at extreme examples to learn best practices you know i say this kind of quite often it's that you know say the the automotive company toyota their racing team is operating at the edge of capacity in terms of um, engineering and their automotive pursuit because they're sort of held to a hotter fire right the the racing team 
exploring how to get an extra, you know, uh, half dozen horsepower or, you know, improve some sort of RPM efficiency, et cetera. That is really looking at the, the edge of their capability because they're held up against competition that also is doing the same and, and that's how you win. Well, it's that pursuit at the edge then that can trickle down and inform the rest of the company, meaning like the Toyota Corolla or the Toyota Camry could benefit from some, some insights from operating at the edge. But uh, it doesn't work the other way, meaning like uh, the Toyota Camry that's driving around in the suburban street uh, is not going to be pioneering insights of what they will be changing on their Formula One race cars because it, by nature, is not necessarily operating at the edge. And so whether your your business or your your own personal pursuits are held to an extreme – we can still learn from the mechanics of that. Like how do we uh, get to the next level or how do we evolve or how do we develop skills that we don't yet have? And it, it surely doesn't come from the comfort zone. It comes with, with finding that edge. And this is sort of getting into the cliff's notes on uh, adaptation, you know, physical adaptation. Most of the, the, the guests of my summit that are fitness people uh, ironically know how this works. They just forget, uh, because they do this all the time on a cellular level, you know, in biology, how do we, um, force change or evolution inside of a cell? Well, it needs a certain level of stress to, to evolve. And that's what training is, uh, except for many of these coaches and, and, uh, leaders in the fitness context sort of forget that when it comes to the type of adaptation that's required for teams and businesses, which is less about muscles and more about adaptation between the ears. How do you get someone who doesn't follow through to begin to follow through? How do you get someone who is, um, let's say, uh, adverse to conflict or is unable to receive negative feedback uh, how do you get them to transcend that and evolve towards, you know, a better um, consciousness, basically, right? This is like the muscle growth of consciousness. And it's by operating at the edge. The interesting thing about our edges is we can't often see what's beyond them. We all have blind spots, for lack of a better word. And so, so much of uh, adaptation or adaptive leadership is exposing people to what's sort of beyond what they can see. And then when you show people that, hey, maybe there's a there's good reason for why you don't follow through, right? And those reasons are actually a protection mechanism that you're doing um, in 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 an effort to to honor some other values you have. And now that you know that, now we can ship away at, at this dynamic and get both follow through and the protection that you were seeking or whatever the case may be. And, and it's only through operating at the edges that we can sort of garner these, these, these changes. Um, and the, the beautiful part about this type of conversation, and I would imagine this is what 
your friend's book would get at is when you operate at the edges like this, you sort of earn uh, skills and adaptations that are highly transferable, which is the reason why we can talk about this in the context of, let's say, a really uh, overachieving, unique um, fitness business from Southern California and how that might impart uh, insanely positive adaptive change to uh, a shoe company and a magazine company mm. and an international speaking company, uh, which is, you know, just examples of, of adaptation that we've driven in other folks, you know, and it's, it's because, uh, I think it's, I think deep down, we know that it's silly to assume that, um, something like follow through is only important for gym guys. Do you know what's really interesting? Like this, something that occurs to me hearing you talk about that, we've had, just recently we had Ray Cash Care on Navy SEAL and host of the Selection uh, TV show in America. Oh, yeah. We've had yeah. on Joe DeSena from Spartan Racing. We've had on a lot of people who will all say that growth comes from getting uncomfortable. And it has been something we've taken through the show as, a, as, a, as an underlying, I guess, common denominator with people who are achieving getting uncomfortable and uncomfortability leads to growth. Something I've never heard talked about that you just mentioned before is generally when people talk about these things is they talk about getting physically uncomfortable. So it's about having a cold shower. It's about going for a run, going, going fasting, or it's about take the stairs, don't take the, the, the travel later. And it generally is about the physical part. But what I've just heard you say is that the other part of that is the mentally getting uncomfortable with learning something that is unfamiliar to you or having a conversation with somebody who intellectually challenges you or putting aside your own knowledge to get uncomfortable and be curious and stay in a conversation with curiosity as opposed to finding a solution yourself. And I reckon that's really gold. I, I have never heard anybody talk about the growth comes from being uncomfortable but getting mentally uncomfortable. Yeah, that that I would argue is um... – maybe the most important connection to be made. I mean, how, uh, how sad is it when we see people who can achieve a high level of understanding or, or performance in one area of their life, but can't seem to make that skill transfer to use that language to another, you know, um, uh, it, it happens all the time. How is it that a Hall of Fame? I just wrote an article about this. How is it that a Hall of Fame uh, athlete, who you know, poster, um, you know, child athlete, prodigy athlete in the in the U.S. and there's there's many examples. I just happen to use one. Um, can understand the type of invaluable skills of like hard work, dedication, follow through, commitment. Uh, resilience to adversity, et cetera, but then outside of the context of sports, seemingly display none of those skills, you know, and 
and that is a, a shame when that lives in sort of isolation like that, you know? And so I would imagine that not only is the consciousness type adaptation and discomfort that we're talking about uh, most sort of universally applicable because we're not all going to do a, a mud run or something like this, uh, but we are all going to uh, – uh, walk around our our lives and interact with other humans on a, on a conscious level and what uh, you know what an opportunity to address that that thing and this this really comes from sort of breaking down our our assumptions and and, and growing the frame through which we can give and, and take information and, and hold more perspective. I honestly, like, I could talk to you about this for hours. So maybe when you're out here in Australia, we can come down to Marrickville and hook up and continue this conversation. Just oh, I'm conscious of, of time with you before we get down to the details of where people find out about the trip to Australia. Just something mm-hmm. that I wanted to talk to you about. You're on episode 179 with us. What was that, Robbo? Was it, that was season five, wasn't it? Was this season? Uh, uh- uh oh. yeah 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 sorry <laughs> yes i think welcome, it was welcome back welcome back <laughs> i couldn't find my mute button i kept missing it <laughs> no you had your face in the refrigerator getting more tim tim <laughs> Any, anyway, <laughs> never work with producers, children, animals. So, the question I had that I didn't get to last time we had on the program. This is something that you posted in a video on Instagram in June 2018. You said that you played baseball at a very high level, yet you said you were not a baseball fan and you never were. You said baseball for you was a vessel and then you went on to say your shoes are a vessel. Deuce Gym is a vessel, a push-up. These are all vessels. Can you explain what you mean by a vessel and how we apply that? Yeah, so uh, that sort of observation was made concrete when I, I was sort of forced to articulate what it, what it was that I learned you know, becoming a professional athlete and then what I learned to be the same about going into business and then what I learned to be the same about many other pursuits is that these pursuits and sports and different contexts like business or the military or even making art, they provide a context for feedback. And I don't want people to miss this, so I want to kind of use a couple examples to to make the same point, is that if you think about a sport, it only makes sense, all the details and the, the, the decisions you make and the training you do and don't do and the techniques that you use and don't use only make sense in the context of the rules of that sport. And without those rules, all of those other things that are so important to be, say, a professional athlete, all of those things would sort of fall by the wayside. 
And the reason why they make sense is because these vessels, to use that word, provide a, a feedback loop. And every single environment from sport to art to entrepreneurship in some way gives us the guardrails to live inside of a process. And what's really cool about these vessels is that we can really turn up the burners and it makes the game or the process uh, a little more fun and exciting and it gives it meaning. Um, so for example, um, in the context of art, um, Let's use fashion. The word a fashion designer might use is their taste. Like how how is it, Mr. Fashion Designer? Do you design these um, these dresses the, that you're so famous for? Well, I rely on my taste, meaning I have a vision in my head as to what the ideal beautiful summer dress would look like. And it's from that vision in my mind that I begin to create. So however the process goes, they start sketching, they start, um, you know, sewing, whatever the thing is. And what they're doing is they're trying to get as close to this, this idea in their head, their taste. Well, Anders Ericsson, a guy I reference a lot, the sort of researcher who coined this, term of deliberate practice calls the taste of a designer a mental representation and every athlete has a mental representation of what they're trying to execute as well you know i i used to take thousands and thousands of swings of the baseball bat in my backyard uh, and in practice and in games and in all kinds of contexts and i would compare what i felt and saw to the mental representation in my head of what an ideal swing was. And then once you have this sort of vision, or now what we call at Deuce Gym and at the summit, the standard in your mind, you then give your best effort. And then what you recognize, if you're open to it, is the deviations from that standard, right? Uh, you, you have an idea in your head of, how to draw the perfect sort of, um, you know, uh, beach scene, and then you pull out your sketch pad, and then you start sketching, and then what you realize is that the marks that you're making on the page are not perfectly matching the marks that you have in your head, and then there's a process of refinement. And so in all of these different lanes, this context provides a feedback mechanism, and it's through this process that you can begin to operate closer and closer to your standard or your taste or this mental representation of what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And the best people in the world at what they do tend to just operate closer to that mental representation. Now, if you know, you went out and played a, a professional baseball game and they said, well, you know, we're going to play sort of, I guess, until uh, we don't feel like it anymore. And, uh, you know, some innings, there'll be three outs and then we'll switch. And then other innings, it'll be 11. And, um, you know, you can really decide if you're safer out or not. And, and, and we sort of lose the, the framework for the game. Then all the feedback starts to 
to go away. It doesn't have meaning. And so from that perspective, it doesn't really matter whether you're a painter or you're an entrepreneur or you're an athlete or you're um, a war fighter. Uh, We're all sort of, if we're open to it, inside an environment that will provide us all the information and feedback we need for evolution and betterment. And so, yeah, I really enjoyed that about baseball. Um, but I was really, I was never a fan of the game in the way that most fans are not to say that that's like a better perspective to have, but I will say that that perspective is one that allows me to see the same exact mechanics happening in every other context. And that makes for sort of a wonderful uh, universal conversation of it, I think. So there's someone listening who wants to come to the summit, Logan, and I've I've endeavoured to give people an understanding of the way because you've got a very unique frame on how you see not just the execution but the thinking of performance and I know that you surround yourself with some pretty impressive people um, around the gym and the, and the community. If I was to speak to some of those people who hang out with you, what three words would they use to describe Logan? Oh, man. Wow. Well, I don't know. I think, uh, you know, if I can just speak freely, I think they would say, Um, I'm very thoughtful, you know, there's not much of this that is just sort of like coming off the cuff and on a whim. Um, I, I sort of stress test all of this stuff, um, indefinitely, you know? And so everything, uh, that I hope comes out of my mouth is, uh, quite thoughtful, and so I would agree that that is there. Um, I think that they would feel that I'm extremely um, empathetic. You know, what people who go to the summit feel and what people who know me on a, I don't know, a personal basis, I think the summit's maybe the only one <laughs> tick down from being like in friendship with me or something is, uh, that I believe <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's a pretty intimate thing. Uh, and you know, people who have attended realize it and that goes both ways is like, you know, uh, I believe that they would say I can really hold space for people uh, because if we're going to do all the things that I just said that we do in the summit, uh, people need to feel safe. And there needs to be a certain level of rapport there uh, because you won't go to the edge, your edge, if you feel like it's a risk uh, that you're not you know, going to recover from. And so I think people would say I'm quite caring and can hold space for them. Um, I don't know. You know, um, they would likely say something about the amount of work that I put out. Uh, this is what I hear from them at least often. Um, and I, I think that the only reason why I'm able to put out the amount of work and volumes of work that I put out is because I've 
done something that I can only hope other people have done and will do for themselves, which is put them in a place where, where they are just able to work harder, better, longer than, um, they could anywhere else. And, uh, I, I know that I'm sort of in that place in my life, luckily. So where would you send people to find out details of uh, the dates, where it is, the agenda for the day, how to buy a ticket, where, where's the hub for all that money? Yeah, they can just go to holdthestandard.com and, um, you know, that will link to, you know, all of the sort of overarching leadership conversations that I'm having there. There are eBooks there. Some are free. Some cost money. All the summit information is there and all the online education is there as well. So, uh, holdthestandard.com. There's also, um, much less frequent, but maybe on a couple layers deeper, there's a blog there as well. I just released number 2000 on articles on the gym website, but, um, the ones on the hold the standard website are are way less specific to fitness and they're more general uh, to everyone who you know who has two eyes and ears um, and uh, those are maybe helpful places to start mate it's always such a great delight to catch up I honestly could spend two hours on the line with you but I think what we'll do is we'll save our questions and uh, see if we can find some time in your plan when you're here down under doing the summit, mate. It's, uh, it'd be a real privilege to meet you and hang out with you. Yeah. I think a better idea would be to go to Auckland, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> it's that time of the year. It's that time of the year. <laughs> it is that time of the year. That's awesome. I would love to meet you guys and that would be so fun to catch up. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm with you. I think we – we always just scratch the surface. So I really appreciate y'all's time. I tell you what, it's it's really funny though, like because there are there are some guests you get on who are very easy to talk to because when they discuss topics, they drop gold and they just leave these threads that you can. And it's funny because I was talking to somebody. We're doing a new show next year for somebody in the states, and we were talking about the interview process. And some people get on and want to ask a bunch of questions to make a podcast. And I don't think enough people take the art of being an interviewer and or a producer seriously enough. And I just find that you are absolute gold for someone who who enjoys the craft of the interview because you drop thoughtful, meaningful, caring bits along the way. And where you have a a highway of questions, the off-ramps are just so innumerable. And uh, it's always such a pleasure, mate. I, I really, really like your stuff. And I think the words you use to describe yourself are exactly what I hear when you're on the line, not just with us, with anybody. Well, I mean, I really appreciate that. And not that we're, we need to sort of um, blow smoke. I mean it when I say that, you know, I, I, I do quite a few podcasts and that there is a difference, uh, you know, a, a wide variety of experiences to have and and you guys uh are extremely buttoned up in that way and it makes it quite easy uh and i, I mean that um i i've thought about that exact thing the art and craft of interviewing and um <laughs> here's something that i think everyone should 
remind themselves of is is to sort of perk up when it looks easy. You know, there's many people listening to this show who probably think like, oh, but of course, you know, they they listen to like, that was great. But of course, like you could have just inter, uh, you could have replaced the interviewers with anyone and it just would have went. And that is a massive mistake. And the people who make it look extremely easy are doing something that is almost impossible to recognize because it looks easy. Gary's given me my uh, my new nickname for you now. I'm going to call you Hansel, leaving your little trail of crumbs. <laughs> Hansel, so <laughs> I hot right gonna, now. <laughs> I thought you were going to call him, hey, Perky. Hey, Perky. <laughs> hey, Perky. We got, <laughs> we got Perky back on the line from Santa Monica. Hey, Perky. No, for, me, you, you, for me, you will be, for, you'll forever be Hansel now, leaving your little trail of crumbs through our interviews. Perfect. I'll notify all my friends. <laughs> Thank so I'm guys. thinking yeah. of a uh, road trip. We should go to Marrickville, then to Auckland, and then go to Santa Monica. Then check out oh. this gym and do work it over there. We'll get, we'll get to it. There. Mojo Radio Show, two of T-shirts, mate. Man, I tell you what, after the year we've had, we probably deserve it, right? <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> well, I well, we're, we're yet to peak, so that might help. If you, if you find yourself lost <sighs> on a 17-hour flight and end up here, I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, don't know, I'm here, but I don't know how I got here, yeah, but true. let's have a beer anyway. That's yeah. true. Yeah, so I'm on the 405, I think. Now, which which turn off do I take? We don't take ourselves too seriously. I wish I knew how to quit you. The Mojo Radio Show. I don't know. I don't know about you, but when he talks about being in the gym, do you know where my mind goes? My mind goes to that gym in Rocky 3 where they go for Rocky to get his mojo back. You know, that really dim, dark, dingy gym. <laughs> Don't ask me why, but that's where my head goes. Just, but that's what Deuce is. Yeah, there you go. Deuce is basically a garage yeah. with a yard at the front. And when yeah, you look right. at the people working well, at go. Deuce Gym, they're moving Atlas rocks. They've got maces and ropes and they're just flipping tyres. And mm. I mean, that's, that's actually what Deuce is. Um, oh, not far off then. <laughs> no, no, you've, you've, got, you've got the right visual. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Marrickville's the place for that sort of gym. <laughs> but I think the only downside, I can imagine your visual is you look like Arnold Schwarzenegger with pecs and delts <laughs> and biceps and you are with a cut-off T-shirt and little shorts on yeah. and flippy ties. That's, uh, that ain't going to happen. Yeah. Is there a bar? <laughs> The Mojo Radio Show. So if we were going to finish season five and there was a band we could talk about as a lesson of rock, uh, where would you go? I reckon there's a fair few, but I know where your head would go. You'd be going mm, U2. I would be going U2. And the reason I would go U2 is for that clip. Now, what was the name of that? It's on YouTube. There was a series that you sent to me some time back of a guy who were talking about The Edge, the lead guitarist for U2, and his guitar setup. What was the name of the show? Yeah, it's a channel on YouTube and it's called Rig Rundown. And they look at uh, the guitar rigs of all these really famous guitarists, the live guitar rigs like The Edge, Angus Young, all those sort of people. And it's, uh, as you discovered, quite incredible. Well, can we... I, uh, this is the bit that I, th- I... This is a while ago when I watched it, but I, re- I remember this particular bit of the host of the show talking to Edge's guitar tech. 
This was a bit that I found most interesting. This guy is the most sonic pioneer guitarist yeah. I have ever worked with. I've worked with a few, but this, yeah. but but I, 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 and he's still at at this point in their career. He's still after sonic. He's down right. here dialing in sounds. Like yesterday, he's still dialing in sounds, to, trying cool. to make the show. Try, trying to, he listens to the playbacks of the tapes, and goes, mm, you know, coming and going. I think we need to look at the third string on on, on that last part. So kids, you know? that's how you become yeah. an icon. Yeah, <laughs> you really. Right, John? You listen, but, but you gotta you put the time in. Yeah, you, you got, put the time or in. Or else you can just play like the the, the guy you like. Right. You know, I want right. I want to sound like Slash. Which, I love Slash, but yeah. yeah okay. Instead of let's see how he does it, man. How how much time right. do, do they put in? But but Edge still puts time in. I mean, the band's gone. Bono's gone. Everybody's gone in the studio. Edge and I, man. You know, that's great. Dialing it in, dialing it in. You know. What I took from that is, this is a guy who you'd have to say is completely at the top of his game. And as his guitar tech talks about, Edge is a Sonics guy. And we, I think we've talked about this before with a couple of shows where he's always challenging his sounds. So even though he's one of the greatest living guitarists at the moment in terms of profile. The guy said he still listens to every playback. He puts in the time. Even though he's a rock legend, it's just part of his DNA because he's always done this. It's a choice he makes. Because he see, he wasn't always like that. So I think we tend to look at these guys and go, well, it's just the edge. You can afford all that. But he wasn't always. He's always been a Sonics guy. And I just like the fact that no matter where we are in our career or our life, if we want to get our mojo working, and in the terms of the guitar tech, get dialed in, you got to put time in. And I would challenge people to say, next season, what are you going to put your time into? What are you going to dedicate yourself to the same way The Edge dedicates himself to Sonics? He listens, he learns, he tries things, he experiments, some would work, some would fail. And I'd say also what I took from that is he said, don't try and out slash slash. So take stuff from The Edge, take stuff from Slash, take that play stuff from Jack White, Robert Plant, all the people we've talked about the last couple of months, but say, well, how does that apply to my world? And I, I just think that piece of a guy like that, you can see why The Edge is at the top of his game, can't you? Absolutely. Totally. And, that, and it's, it's interesting because it shines through with all these guys that they talk about. But The Edge, particularly in the episodes of that show, he's really, as they said, dialed in totally. Right down to his guitar pick. And he said yes. that <laughs> the way that the guitar pick is produced, there's certain yeah. edges in the edges guitar pick. Isn't and the guy incredible? said, can I have a look? He said, well, no, actually I can't because that's, that is something that he's... But right down to the guitar pick. And I heard a sports person today talking where it breaks it down is a classic example. Now, for our international guests, uh, this season is cricket season in Australia. It's one of our big sports, and it's a game played with bat and ball. And there is a team who are in the last stages of the game. They are challenged to win the game, and the guy said, we're going to break it down to ball by ball, hour by hour, session by session, and hope we come out in front. And I thought that's that's the classic example of Edge breaking it down to pedal, pick, yes, yes. strings. <laughs> so anyway, all right, before we take it out, uh, 
Folks, you're probably wondering why there are some noises of drills and hammers and saws and guys working around the place. Robbo, tell us what's happening. The Mojo Radio Studio is getting a bit of a spruce up over the break. So, yeah, the boys uh, couldn't wait. They got in early and uh, got going. Look for, look, look for some new innovations in the new season. Is it fair to say there could be a new member of the team starting? Oh, let's not give away too much. Right. So if we are going to go out with a great song to finish up season five, welcome a new day in season six, which will be coming to the airwaves shortly. If there was going to be a new day and it was a U2, a U2 song by featuring The Edge, what would you play out with? Oh, okay. I think you're going in a direct, different direction to me. I was going to say because we're at the end of the season, that means we're going on holidays, which means it's a beautiful day. What day did you have in mind, though? A beautiful day. You two were out. The heart is a blue Shoots up through the stony ground There's no room No space to rent in this town You're out of luck And the reason that you had to care The traffic is stuck you're not moving anywhere You thought you found a friend To take you out of this place Someone you could lend a hand In return for grace It's a beautiful
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.